Welcome to the Unqualified Scholar Podcast. Welcome to the Unqualified Scholar Podcast. I'm joined again with my good friend, Dr. Michael McKay, as we are talking about Psalm 7 today. Uh, Michael, you were just saying that you were reading this in Hebrew. True. Yes, I did. And it nerd. It is nerdy. And it was quite, it was, there were some difficult statements. Um, yeah. So thankfully, our English translations are provide a few different options that are very similar. So they can give us kind of a, a what's that, a well-rounded maybe set of options. But yeah, the Hebrew is a little difficult. Poetry in general is kind of difficult, but this was more difficult than normal. I think that's very true. And I think sometimes it's because of the high context nature of the Hebrew language. You know, a lot of times as you're reading through or like, okay, so I've said this multiple times. Hebrew was the bully who took my lunch money and gave me a swirly just about every day in seminary. (laughs) I had to apologize to my Hebrew professor. Uh, He was very kind. He said, there's more to life than Hebrew. But uh, so when I work in Hebrew, it's typically um, I use the internet to find it read online and I'll listen to it a couple of times. And after I've listened to it, I try to go try to follow along word by word, but I certainly am not, I would not call it reading. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's times where you look at a single word and it has to be represented by several words in English. Yeah, right. Very true. Yep. And with, with poetry in particular, like you said, it's, um, it's representative of a lot of idioms and stuff. And then the language is very condensed and concise and sometimes verbs are omitted, uh, just because it's poetry. Well, it's just the style. Well, don't we do that in English? Like, yeah. uh, like, so psalms are songs, and don't we in our songs occasionally like slur words? Yeah, exactly. Uh, have you ever sung along to the classics of the '80s, and then all of a sudden you're like, "Wait, I don't know the words." Yeah, I, that happens to me all the time. Yeah, even in our hymns too. You know, you if you read the lyrics to uh, what is it? There's power in the blood. You know, you look mm-hmm. at it and it's. Sometimes the word power is spelled P-O-W uh, apostrophe R, you know, yeah. you're supposed to kind of slur the E-R to par, as, you know, that yeah. old Southern way of singing the hymn. <laughs> yeah, you don't have an accent, but you grew up in Georgia, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Somehow the accent didn't stick. Right. But all the songs, I can I can remember the, the Southern way of singing them. <laughs> <laughs> you can get those. You get Mabel on the piano. You can get things going. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this uh, so the superscription says that this is a Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Um, and Shigeon is usually referred, thought of as a musical term, something that's been lost to history. And so this word is, it's called transliterated. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's the Hebrew word with English letters. Yep. And what does it mean? We don't know. Too don't much. know. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's kind of why. That's one of the things that's kind of cool. Um, you have the Nephilim in uh, Genesis, and it's the yeah. same thing. The word means fallen ones, but in Hebrew, it's Nephilim. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the the uh, Latin translation translated gigantes, which means giants. But there's really not a lot in the text that tells you what these pe- who these people were. 
you know, were they just mighty men? Were they just, uh, were they gigantic? How big were they? You know, right. those kind of things. And then you know, we have Goliath who is measured, mm-hmm. but the Nephilim are not. And so that's where uh, it's very interesting to see the transliterations and how they work. Same thing's true of baptism, you know, from the Greek word baptizo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good illustration we're all familiar with. It's interesting in the Greek uh, version of this psalm, they just rendered it a psalm. Like, <laughs> in other words, they it's almost like, well, we don't have a good Greek word for this, whatever it means. So we're not going to transliterate it. We're just going to say a psalm. <laughs> yeah. Is that like is that a cop out or is that like the the wise route to take? Yeah, uh, that's that's the translation's million dollar question, I guess. So. It's also interesting, um, there is no, like, there's no real reference to Cush. Like, we don't really know who he is. Mm. Um, So if you look, there's a couple Cushes, I think. Uh, Search for the word. Uh, There's a river or a land named Cush. The sons of Ham, one of Ham's sons is Cush. Okay. Um, Cush fathered Nimrod, second kings. There's a king of Cush. Yeah, there's just not really, until you get to Psalm 7, um, we don't really know who this person is. Do you Seems think like maybe an enemy of David based on the psalm, if that's, if that's how we're supposed to read the, the, sub, the superscription? How did you read that? So basically, I, I, so Cush uh, is a Benjamite, but um, there's the other Shimei from from the tribe of Benjamin. So I, I just basically used the same situation mm. and applied it to uh, David's historical situation because the historical situation seems to match up. Gotcha. This is a psalm about enemies, and so Cush would be an enemy of David. Shimei was also an um, an enemy of David, and so here David has two different enemies, possibly at the same time. Um, and that's where like the Psalms, like there's a little bit of freedom there. Walter Brueggemann talks about how um, it's really hard to find the historical context, but in a lot of ways, the Psalms were written to apply to a lot of different historical contexts. Yeah. Yeah. So we talk about historical and cultural interpretation. Um, and maybe what we have to do is uh, realize that sometimes these are very broad categories. In other words, we're not talking about a modern day song. We're talking about an ancient song. However, locating a precise historical cultural situation may be unnecessary because mm. it, it, um, there's probably many that we could pull from David's life, but in one sense, that's a secondary issue based on just the psalm itself being the most important thing. What's one of your favorite songs and how does it have meaning for you? songs like modern day ones yeah uh let me give you an example from my life and and then um so my brother died from a heroin addiction okay okay and the uh the group i think it's is it guns and roses i think it's guns and roses they have a song called mr brownstone which is about heroin yeah and so like i'm not for the use of heroin i'm actually very opposed to drugs but when i hear that song i think about my brother you mm-hmm. know and so for me like it doesn't like the drug component is only a minor note where for me the major note is to think about my brother gotcha yeah so the song ends up being almost forgettable because it's just a vehicle to uh 
remember your brother. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you've actually kind of reframed the the original maybe author's intent of that song because <laughs> uh, if I remember the song correctly, they're not condemning heroin, but they're probably talking about some of the dangers of it a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. You'll listen to it later. Yeah, I remember the song, yeah. I mean, yeah. I used to be a GNR fan in the day, so. Yeah, back in the day. <laughs> you know, music for me, I'm not good at music, to be honest, like remembering things. So mm. recently I've picked up, uh, I've been listening to Weezer and their Teal album where they do a bunch of covers of 80 songs, and I really oh, enjoyed yeah. that. But I'm <laughs> trying to think if there's something that's attached to that, that there's probably memories that I have of those songs in the 80s. Mm but I, nothing specific comes to mind. I used one recently, um, I think maybe two two or three sermons ago, uh, Cats in the Cradle by U- Ugly Kid Joe. Yeah, that's right. And that's about how, you know, you're, you get busy with life and you forget the important things are your kids, you know, and then it, the roles get reversed at the end. That has a lot of meaning for me because, uh, you know, I think about my dad you know, and he's gone now. And so I try to make sure that I'm available for my kids and grandkids. And um, yeah, that just, that, that, you know, and, and that even goes back to when we were in, in school together, when we were teaching together. And, um, you know, if my, if one of my kids would come in my office, you know, I would say, okay, this is when I'm going to clear my desk and spend a few minutes with my kids, because these are the things that matter most. Mm. And I know you've done the same thing. You actually are a great dad. Thanks. I appreciate that. Actually, your illustration reminded me of one. Okay. So I don't listen to this all the time, but there's a song in Fiddler on the Roof where he is, um, Tevia, the main character is uh, thinking about all, all, I think three of his daughters is what he has. They're all getting married and leaving. And even before Leanne and I had kids, I would listen to that song and it would choke me up thinking about the day when you know, the kids that we might have would end up <laughs> leaving home. So I, I do regularly associate all of that with that song now, even mm. whenever I hear it. So there's one. And I think that's, so like circling all the way back around to this Psalm in particular, or really any Psalm, like there would be multiple times where this would have meaning in the life of faith. Um, in the Old Testament, and certainly in New Testament times, people would sing these songs, uh, when the occasion warranted, you know, and, or they would refer to these songs when the occasion warranted. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, so so this song, just to add to that, a comment that we've made multiple times as we've done the podcast, these Psalms provide words and phrases and expression that we may not feel comfortable with, or we may not have the linguistic ability to express it and so by reading the psalms and um in some ways i was going to say sympathizing with the author but really it's the other way around the author is the one who's reflecting emotions that we Mm. feel that we may not be able to communicate very well we we learn how to articulate our heart to the lord yeah there's something that i said with this psalm and with uh, the other lament we did two laments in this series because you know, I'm trying to get through all the Psalms in my career. So this is uh, significant. But lament is a language for a broken world. Yeah. And uh, one of the essays I read in Brueggemann's book, which was really very good, uh, when the church loses lament, we lose something in our relationship with God. 
when we when we key all of our emotions all the way up here in this worship experience mm. without including the depths of despair how do we actually speak to people who are living in a broken world that's right how do we speak i think we did psalm 6 a couple of weeks ago which deals with uh, intense illness and the intensity of illness and psalm 7 today is about uh, injustice in a broken world yeah. So I think when we try to we try to get people pumped up and we try to get people all the way up here so often that we forget that we don't live there. We live That's somewhere right. kind of different. Yeah. And one fact, of the other it's things. It's a bit. Uh, just sorry to interrupt you, oh, but go it's ahead. A bit yeah, no. actually disingenuous for us to pretend that that's the norm. And yeah. what we're really communicating to people who are hurting, particularly those who are suffering injustice, is that. They just need to look on the sunny side of life or something yeah, weird yeah. like that, which negates their feelings. It negates their situation and is mm -hmm. uh, actually unbiblical. Yeah, absolutely. I visited with a family this afternoon. Um, the matriarch of the family, she's 101 years old and she's, she's in the process of dying, you know, and so we went and visited and she looks great. She's, she got good color. She's breathing pretty strongly, but it's pretty obvious that she suffered some kind of stroke or something. And, and so it will be a few days, unless something catastrophic happens, it may be a few days, maybe a few hours. And, you know, to, to walk into that family and just, you know, start spreading sunshine. I mean, they're, they're farmers, they're accustomed to spreading stuff and they recognize manure when they see it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so I think it would be disrespectful to what's going on in their life right now to walk in and start spreading that sunshine. Mm -hmm. That's a yeah, that's a helpful application. And we'll see if we get any complaints. You know, I just did technically talk about spreading the manure, but anyway. <laughs> Mom, if you're listening. Um, the other thing that I said, you know, the Psalms are so, are so broad that you're living in a Psalm today. You know, whether you're in deep darkness or whether you're at the height of, you know, positive experience and rejoicing, there is a Psalm for that. Um, if you're experiencing probably, maybe the word is ennui, uh, you know, you're just kind of, what does that work? What does that? And I have to look it up. Uh, you're, you're experiencing something. There's a psalm for all these kind of things that you're experiencing and feeling. And, and so don't, don't think that there's nothing in the Old Testament for you. Mm. There certainly is. Is that E-N-U-I? Is that it? E-N-N-U-I. E-N-N-U-I. I'm the wrong vowel. Did you mean ennui? Yes. A feeling of listlessness and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. Maybe that's the one that there isn't. Is there a psalm about boredom? <laughs> yeah, I'll have to chew on that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to go read the psalms. So, so anyway, let's uh, maybe we can get into the nitty gritty a little bit with Psalm 7. And this is, uh, we've been recording uh, before, but you were on vacation last week. Let me, let's go kind of section by section. I'll read the first five verses and we'll talk about it. Okay. Oh, Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, or plundered my enemy without cause. Let my enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. What are some things that strike you out of that kind of right off the bat? 
Yeah, I think there's kind of, uh, well, there's several things, but I'll, I'll just focus on one. Um, to me, it's interesting that David uh, recognizes that he's in danger, he's being persecuted, but one of his first responses is to actually ask the Lord to reveal if he is the source or the cause for putting someone else against him. And I think, um, you know, we don't have to go too far to recognize that we are easily blinded by our own sense of justice and right and wrong. Oh, yeah. And um, we need actually the Lord to help us to see beyond our own limited perspective. And often this comes in the in the form of friends and family who come alongside mm -hmm. us and say, hey, you know, what you, you when you said this or did this, you may not have realized it, but this is how you came across. But mm -hmm. the fact that David is being humble before the Lord and asking that I, I, um, I want to, I want to have that same quality about me. I don't mm. want to be the, the train wreck, you know, that's bringing damage with me and then complaining about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So often we are, we are, and, and that's where like in the moment, in the, in the heated moment when something is happening and you're, you're mad. I mean, this is, this is David is suffering injustice here. Um, and so 2 Samuel 16, let me see if I can pull that out real quick. So David uh, is undergoing a rebellion and the rebels have started to kind of take over the kingdom. And so he's running for his life. He's packed up some, some friends and family and he's heading out of town. Uh, 2 Samuel 16, 5, uh, he came to Behurim. There came out a man of the house of Saul, gosh, English words, whose name was Shemaiah, the son of Gera, and he came and he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shemaiah said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And I think that's where that's where David is probably like if this fits the historical context even a little bit, mm -hmm. you know that David is in a situation where he's being accused, falsely accused. He does want to say, "Look, Lord, my hands are clean. I haven't done anything wrong." And I love verse nine. Then Abishai the son of Zariah said to the king, "Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head." <laughs> And I, you know, as I, as I, as I taught this to the church, I was like, you know, it's really good that I don't have that power, right. <laughs> especially in traffic, right? Somebody sure. cuts you off in traffic. If there was a button that brought down lightning, I would do it. Yeah. Maybe you're a better man than I am. I would do it. Yeah. Now, I mean, I think this is where we see a person, David, who has authority and power in his hand and is offering amazing restraint yeah well i, I assume restraint right what what does how does david respond maybe we should flesh that out for the audience he does so he, he goes down a little bit in verse 11 he says uh behold my own son seeks my life how much more now may this benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for the lord has told him to Verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Hmm. So David is willing to endure being cursed because he's going to trust God with the judgment. 
Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? That's yeah, I mean, and he's got he's got this guy who's like, I will literally go cut this man's head off. Hmm. Um, yeah, just say the word and I'll solve at least this little problem. You know, the bigger yeah. problem can't be solved right now, but we don't, yeah. there's no need this gad, uh, the gadfly can be swatted and crushed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, Abishai is like, yeah, he's the guy who says, look, um, let's do it. You know, he's a man of action and he's probably frustrated because he can't take any action. Mm. So, um, yeah, incredibly wise of David, you know, incredibly, you know, we'd call it spiritually mature, you know, mm. uh, that he's going to be the bigger man. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that it was easy. He was you know, he's crying out in Psalm seven. He's crying out to God. And, and his first move is to say, look, I'm innocent. Yeah. Now, my memory, not to trace this uh, narrative thread too far, but my memory is that when David resumes uh, power in Jerusalem, he tells this man, look, you, as long as you stay in the city limits, you'll get to live. But as soon as you leave, then justice will come down on you. And isn't it under Solomon that he leaves and um, judgment finally happens to this guy? I, I did not look. I, I'm, I'm going off memory here, so I may be really yeah. wrong, but. Maybe hard to track down. Yeah, 1921. So if you if you look for his name, Shimei, S-H-I-M-E-I, Shimei, Shimei. It would probably be in First Kings something. Yeah, First Kings, uh, there's some First Kings. Uh, one. Oh well, we don't have to. Yeah, uh, we don't have to track it down. But all that to say, uh, yeah, you're, this you're guy right. First, did not learn humility from, from the grace that was given him, yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh, you know ended up getting judged. So, um, in one sense, the. The loose end here, the narrator is making sure to let us know, hey, look, this guy did not go unpunished. Uh, your memory is very good. It's First Kings 2. Um, yeah, First Kings 2 is where it's going to pick up. So, okay. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah, we all get lucky every now and then. It happens. <laughs> Even a broken clock is right twice a day. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I need to get that etched on a piece of wood and hang it in my office. <laughs> just... <laughs> yeah, my, yeah, anyway, never mind. Why don't you read that next section? So okay. uh, David is protesting his innocence. And he's saying, Lord, if I'm guilty, let my enemy have me. Yeah. So from six to what? What were you uh, six to Six to like 14, okay. uh, six to 13. Gotcha. So there is that another musical term, Selah, that is kind of functioning there maybe as a as a, a stanza marker at the end of verse five. So that's another reason I think it's helpful to point that out for your readers and listeners. That they can learn to be good readers of the psalm as well. But it definitely changes tone here. Verse six, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. 
O oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O oh righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Verse 12, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. I think the first thing uh, that, that I noticed and that I taught this past week is, um, you know, God doesn't, you don't have to wake God up. Mm. You know, he's, he's not sleeping. But this is a poetic description of a prayer that hasn't been answered yet. You know, it's like, Lord, there's this problem. I know you know about it. Do your thing. Go ahead. Let's fix this so we can move on with the things that matter. And the things that matter for David, you know, justice matters, you know, and I think that's where there are a lot of people in the world who are very frustrated because they feel a lack of justice. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It, and in some things, like you said, there's a, there is real injustice in the world. I mean, we see that. And then there's also perceived injustice where we take offense Um maybe even for other people or for creating imaginary things in our mind. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how often you may fall into this trap, but I, I'll i find sometimes when I'm driving, I'll get frustrated with someone doing something, you know, and before, it doesn't take me long before I've constructed a whole narrative in my mind about, mm. you know, this, <laughs> this evil person who's, you know, somehow done something wicked to me. The reality is, is they probably didn't even realize they had done it, you know. They're, right, they're, yeah. They're no more evil than the next person. Um, Arise, O oh Lord, in your anger. Yeah, this that's guy right. Didn't, yeah. didn't use his turn signal. <laughs> and But here, David, you know, is uh, he actually, these are imperatives, you know, arise, mm -hmm. lift mm -hmm. yourself up, awake for me. You know, he's, this is strong language for mm. a creature to talk to his creator. Um, that's, that's the thing that just, it always strikes me in the lament Psalms and really in the Psalms in general. These are imperatives and there's a way to say, please, mm -hmm. you know, you can just add nah to a, a word. It, it's sure. a please in Hebrew, right? And there's no please, you know? And so it would be a very simple and even maybe a rhythmic way to say, please, Lord, please, Lord, please, Lord. But mm -hmm. this is not a please. This is a demand. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just, I think in my prayer life, I want to pray like this. You know, I want to be bold. Hey, Lord, this is wrong. And I need you to fix it because I can't. I'm just a creature. Yeah. You know, and so that's that's something that always really just kind of gets me. Um, because, I, you know, there are things that we that we pray about that we're desperately praying for, you know, all of us. And when you're praying for it, you don't need to you don't even need to have really good theology. Sometimes you just need to talk to your creator because that's what he wants. Yeah. You know, you said something that just kind of triggered a thought with me as well that, you know, we have these imperatives and yet um, the heart behind it is the limitation of being human. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, perhaps that it might help uh, Christians who are listening as they're thinking, well, I could never do what David does. I could never use that language because then I would be bossing God, God around. Mm. Well, not really, because David is reflecting his limits of being a human. In other words, he has nowhere else to turn. 
Mm. So he is crying out to God with an imperative because he's desperate. This is, this is the only option he has is yeah. to trust God. And so it, it demands in some ways um, language that reflects that, even though David is not, I don't think he's intending to communicate that he somehow has leverage over God or that God mm. is how going to submit to him. He's just right, acknowledging right. his humanness that there is nothing I can do here. If you yeah. don't come through, I'm done. Mm. Yeah, and I think we experience, I mean, this is just the broken world thing. I'm reading um, a book called The Quest for Cosmic Justice. Hmm. And really what the author, it's Thomas Sowell, who's an intellectual. He's really, really very good. And I mean, he's conservative, but, but the idea is that in all of the talk about justice, what we really want is God to enter in and make the world right. You know, and it doesn't like you don't have to agree with somebody's perspective on justice, um, but you can at least agree with their experience of a broken world. I mean, that's just good theology. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you could think about um, for the five listeners here, this really isn't political, but the example that I used in the sermon, I think, was um, migrants at the border. You know, and you have people who are who feel one way about it. Well, they shouldn't have crossed the border and people who feel the other way about it. Well, they should be allowed to cross the border. But in the middle, you have people who need help, material help, while their legal situation is resolved one way or the other. And I use the example of a friend of mine who used to foster immigrant children who were just kind of caught in the system. Wow. And it's like, that is a Christian response to a difficult political problem. And so I, I think so many times we fail to do the Christian response. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah, that's good. We're, we're, we're so polarized uh, on a political issue that we're actually missing an opportunity to minister uh, the kingdom of, of Jesus mm -hmm. in that situation. I think the other example that I really, I really do like, you know, I'm, I'm, I am opposed to abortion, but I don't wave signs about it, you know, because I think that waving signs and posting things on Facebook is actually the least profitable thing that you can do. It doesn't really help people. It just tells people that you're not safe to talk to if they have performed an abortion or if they've had an abortion or if they are pro-abortion, you're not safe because you've signaled that with your, with your sign. Sure. But I want to be the kind of person that if somebody came to me and said, I've had an abortion or even I'm pregnant and I don't know what to do. Like, what is the compassionate Christian response? The chances are pretty good that it's going to be expensive. It's going to cost you something to enter into that person's life, to dialogue with them. Maybe if you have room in your house, it's giving them room in your house. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big ask, right? Because, yeah. you know, to invite someone into your home, that's inconvenient, at least. I mm -hmm. mean, we have children, we both know this. Yeah. And if the person ends up doing what you don't agree is the right thing to do, then you could be viewed as, um, complicit in their decision and you yeah. know even though you're trying to do the loving thing and disagree with their decision um it could be misread by others so yeah that it but it's still i think we need to consider these options these are the ones mm -hmm. that are going to be the most impactful for a, a hurting world 
Mm. You know, you mentioned earlier about kind of this human drive that we have for justice in the world. We, we tend to see the broken parts. I do wonder sometimes, though, if because of um, well, probably for all kinds of different cultural and political and religious reasons that we end up um, ignoring problems for because we don't want to deal with them. So, for example, let me give a, an illustration. You know, you used immigration, mm. you know, and so we've got these two kind of options that are floated out there uh, politically anyway. And yet it's, it would be easy for one side to ignore the injustice that their opinion mm. creates. And it would be easy also for the other side to ignore the injustice that their side creates. In other words, mm. by we want to bolster our own opinion. So we demonize or we uh, just refuse to acknowledge the injustice that, that our own opinion could create. And so because of that, I think we actually end up fostering future injustice you know as yeah. christians mm -hmm. we're not actually part of the solution here we're we're creating more and more injustice and don't even we're not actively trying to do that but because we want to win or because we want our opinion to be heard it ends up being uh, uh one of the implications mm. i find it fascinating we're far enough into the podcast that i can feel free to break out a little politics right <laughs> um i find it fascinating that people on the left and the right are concerned about government overreach because people who are pro-firearms and people who are um, pro-choice are both mad uh, well, or pro-life. I mean, all these people are mad about the government going too far. Sure. You know, so that just a um, little politics there. Yeah, that's a good observation. There's that there maybe there's the uh, the common ground that we need to draw attention to how both people are thinking about that in the same way. Down with government. Yeah. <laughs> Verse fourteen. Behold, the wicked the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. So I love the, I love the picture here, and we talked about it in the pre-show, how uh, we have a mutual friend who uh, was pregnant with twins, and she was so pregnant because uh, she's a very small lady. And so it's just, it's just fascinating to me, that picture that the psalm creates. And eventually, you know, a pregnant woman, now you're never supposed to ask if she's pregnant unless you're a doctor, right? That's like the line. Um, but when she gives birth, you know, that it's, it's just a, a graphic picture of something that we know. You know, if your dog gets pregnant, she's going to have puppies. If you're a wicked man and you're pregnant with wickedness, you're going to give birth to lies. Mm. I find that picture just fascinating. Yeah. Well, that is. That's good. And it is interesting that there's there seems to be a bit of um, where the author of the psalm is drawing attention to the fact that the evil person ends up defeating themselves. Yeah, They, they dig a pit, a pit uh, presumably for someone else, and then they end up falling in it and crushing their own skull. So we don't, we don't often um, see that, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. we do, but 
I think part of justice here is seeing the evil kind of implode on itself. Yeah. Movies probably do a better job of drawing attention to that than oh yeah, maybe real life. I mean, Voldemort from the Harry Potter thing. He, I mean, he he eventually gets his comeuppance. That's right, and does it to himself, doesn't he? Mm. It's kind of amazing. I, I'm not that invested in the franchise. I don't know, <laughs> to be honest. Um, uh, no, that's a great illustration. I didn't think of it, but you are right. He does end up doing that to himself. Yeah. So there's actually a line, and I looked it up. It's from the Mummy. Okay. Uh, where the female lead, Evie, tells um, the little rat guy, he's like, evil, evil little, oh, nasty little cre creature such as you always get their comeuppance or something like that. That's great. And I was like, that's, and he does. He gets his comeuppance. He goes to work for the bad guy and he ends up getting eaten or whatever. Yeah. Um, Isn't his name Benny? I don't know why. Yeah, Benny. That. Yeah, yeah, Benny. yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> now we have to go watch The Mummy again. That's right. Um, yeah, and I think that's where it's it's interesting because it doesn't like you don't get the sense of divine activity. It's not it's not that God comes down and zaps people, uh, even though we wish that He would sometimes. Um, but it's that look the the path of the evil person leads to evil, and they'll get theirs. Yeah, yeah. If they're gonna breed death and destruction and lies, then those things will end up killing them. I mean. And, and actually, there's a warning here for us not to take on the methods of the enemy in order to solve the problems that we see out there, because mm. these things never merit good or justice or love. Yeah. They just end up breeding more destruction. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the big things to uh, like. This is an instructive part of the psalm where it's it's a caution and it's also a comfort. Hmm. It's a comfort to know that God sees all, knows all, and will judge the, the wicked person. But it's also a caution to make sure that we don't descend to their level. That's right. There's an old proverb that says, never get into a, a fight with a pig. You'll both get dirty and the pig will enjoy it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I think I want to live, I want to live in Psalm 717. I will give thanks to the Lord due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the most high. Mm -hmm. I think that's where we want to live. That's that high spot. That's that, that um, exalted position that David answers from in his interaction with Shimei. But the reality is, is that we're always somewhere else or we're always on the way to that place, but not always. Sometimes when we face injustice, we're on the way to that place and we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. We need to know, first of all, that that's where we want to be. And then when these situations arise, we need to know how to get there. Yeah. So in your work with college students, can you think of a, a way this might apply to the young people that you work with? I think that, uh, well, this is not specific to college people, but I, I mean, students are wrestling with injustice, not only on a, a global level, but they're also struggling just like all other age groups are with real and perceived injustice in their own life. You know, people come from broken homes and people are mistreated at work. Um, people uh, are feel maybe even a, a grade is unjustified, you know, mm. as, as maybe small as that is. Oh, that never happens. <laughs> That's right. So I, I think uh, I think it's easy for them to be able to put their hooks into this psalm in a real Man. way. I remember this kid. 
oh, her name was Amy, right? And she, she fought for every point. Um, I, my recollection is that she wasn't really an outstanding student, but I know at least once she came and she advocated for herself and, and she got points from me. <laughs> and I think she did this for, for a number of different professors or teachers, and she actually ended up graduating with honors. No way. Wow. So yeah, yeah. That's the recollection. Add it down to a science. Well, <laughs> does, the, does the university have a, uh, like a social media policy? Uh, you mean like personally for the students? Yeah, like for the students. Are they, do they have some standard that they put out there? You know, there might be. I mean, I would assume certain obvious things, you know, um, you know, like nudity and that kind of stuff would oh, be, sure. mm -hmm. you know, against the rules. But I don't, I don't really know off the top of my head. Thankfully, I don't have to work in that circle. <laughs> yeah, right. I can entrust that to someone else. <laughs> Excellent. Well, hey, thanks for your time. I really appreciate you coming out and doing this. This is fun. Yeah, same here, brother. It's and, always good to go through the text with someone else who's thought about it uh, deeply. So that's good. Well, I don't know about deeply, but okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, it's always pastorally. You're always kind of juggling. You're juggling seven different hats. So that's how it goes. But all right, that's it. Thanks for coming out. Thanks, mom. Love you. All right, we'll see you next time.